Well, as we near Christmas Day, we also near the end of these birth narratives in Luke's gospel. And in this sermon, we arrive at the birth of John, the son who was previously promised to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, the text that we're observing this morning is broken into two scenes. The first scene is that of John's birth and circumcision. And then the second scene is Zechariah offering a prophetic word of praise. In the first scene, we'll observe God's faithfulness paired with Zechariah and Elizabeth's response of obedient faith. And then in the second scene, we'll encounter Zechariah's prophetic interpretation of the meaning of these events. We'll see that God redeems his people so that they can serve him. More than that, we'll see that this redemption is bound up in the forgiveness of sins offered through Jesus alone. So let's begin by observing this first scene in John's birth and circumcision and naming in verses 57 through 66. From the start, we'll see that God faithfully keeps his promises. So this scene opens with that simple announcement that the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth and she had a son. In these simple words, God's promise delivered through Gabriel came true. Elizabeth actually had a baby boy. What's more, when her relatives and friends hear the news, they rejoice with her, fulfilling the other word of the Lord through Gabriel, that many would rejoice at his birth. So from the very start, in this simple declaration, we see that God keeps his promises. Now Luke gives us nothing of the birth story. There's no Instagram with pictures of this newborn baby in the hospital or at home or however that takes place for people these days. Um, Neither was there a gender reveal outside of that simple phrase, they had a son. Um, That would be the most unsurprising gender reveal ever because the angel already told them what was going to happen. There are really no details on the birth. It skips past that straight to the naming of the child. We are given, though, Elizabeth's response. Earlier, she declared that God had taken away her disgrace. And now she's communicated to her neighbors and relatives that the Lord has shown her great mercy. God gave her a healthy son in fulfillment of that promise. After years of infertility, After perhaps doubt of neighbors that this older woman would have a baby, God came through on his promises and Elizabeth interpreted it as the faithfulness and mercy and kindness of God. Now for all the joy involved, we can also imagine the hardships that came along the way. Elizabeth endured this pregnancy as an older woman, remember in a society with very little by way of medical care. So there were all the normal risks that came with childbearing, but this was for sure a high-risk pregnancy. No doubt it was only her faith in God that brought her through this time. To make matters worse, Zechariah had been mute this entire time, stricken with that punitive sign because of his faltering in faith. So imagine an already um, odd pregnancy circumstance all of the normal challenges that couples face, and added to that, Zechariah can't say a word. 
Now, maybe sometimes that might have helped the situation out, but I think more often than not, that would have been challenging to this young couple, or to this old couple, as they go through a young couple's experience of having a child. But in it all, God was faithful to this couple. He was faithful to his promises. I think one of the key points throughout Luke's gospel, and especially in these chapters, is that God is always true to his word. He always keeps his promises, regardless of how unlikely it seems. Regardless of what hardship and pain we might experience along the way, God is always demonstrating his faithfulness to his people. Now, sometimes God um, demonstrates that faithfulness by making promises like, in nine months you'll have a baby boy, and then keeping that promise nine months later when the baby boy comes. However, few, if any of us, will have an angel appear and give us a promise like that. Instead, we identify God's promises in the Bible. It's in the scriptures that we hear the word of God making promises And it's in the scriptures that we have examples like this one of God keeping those promises. More than that, um, God, in his word, communicates promises not just to couples like this, but to us. These promises that were made thousands of years ago are promises that are still active. And in the scriptures, we find them. So I want to encourage you, to attend to the promises that God makes in the Bible. Um, Look in the scriptures for the promises of God. Read the Bible really carefully. Um, Listen carefully to sermons, um, Christian podcasts, or religious books that talk about God's promises in the scriptures. And when you come across these promises, note them, write them down, pull out your phone and and type that promise out on your notes app. Um, Pay attention to God's promises And then as you look at your list of God's promises, pull it out and think through the experiences in your own life and try to identify how God is being faithful to those promises now, in the present. Through careful attention to the promises in Scripture and studied reflection on the events in your own life, you might be surprised to see how often God is keeping his promises every single day to you. As you identify God's promises, and correlate them with the events in your life, you'll be able to better interpret the events in your life as demonstrations of God's faithfulness. One challenge that we all face is to look at the events in our lives and interpret them in negative and false ways. We look at the hardships we experience, we look at the troubles we go through, and we interpret them in particular ways. Some of us are inclined to say, bad things happen to me because God is out to get me. He doesn't really care about me. Or other people are out to get me. Or whatever the case might be, we often interpret the experience of our lives apart from the faithfulness of God. But when we examine examples like Zechariah and Elizabeth, we see that even in the hardest moments of life, God shows himself faithful time and time again. So I encourage you to observe the promises in Scripture, and see how God is being faithful to you today. More than that, I think God doesn't want us just to see the way that he's faithful in our lives. He wants us to help other people see how God is being faithful to them. When God redeems people and saves them, he puts them in a community of faith, 
a church. He allows us to get to know one another. And he allows us to see with greater clarity than other people what God is doing in their lives. Very often we're blind to what God is doing, but other people can see it really, really clearly. They can see that the hand of the Lord is on us. Part of our responsibility as Christians is to allow other people to speak into our lives and show us where God is being faithful. But our responsibility is also to help people see God's faithfulness in their lives. So I want to encourage you, especially if you're a member at Resurrection Church, in your home groups this afternoon, or during our Wednesday pizza and praises, or in our workdays, or whenever you're interacting with other Christians here, take the time to detect how God is being faithful to other people and help them see it so that you can rejoice together in the faithfulness of God, just as Elizabeth's relatives and neighbors rejoiced in God's faithfulness to her. So we see that God always keeps his promises. God is faithful. He is true to his word. But then we have exemplified for us a right response to God's faithfulness. We ought to respond with obedient faith. Now rejoicing, of course, is always the right response when we see God keeping his promises. We should be happy about this. We should be joyful. But we should go beyond just rejoicing to the obedience of faith as emulated by Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, as the story progresses, Zechariah and Elizabeth, already noted as righteous and blameless, continue to live in covenant faithfulness before God as they take their new baby boy to the temple to be circumcised on the eighth day. This was instructed in Genesis 17. All baby boys in Israel should be circumcised on the eighth day. And apparently, this is also when the child would be named. This was just the normal practice at the time. So these people take their child to have this procedure done. And as weird as this seems to us, you would invite your relatives and friends and neighbors to this event where where your baby is circumcised, and and then you would name the child, and it would be a, a lot of celebrating that would be going on here. Well, apparently, Zechariah had communicated to Elizabeth, probably through writing, that Gabriel instructed that their son should be named John. This would be a fitting name for their child because it means Yahweh is gracious. It would describe the graciousness of God that would be communicated through this boy's message as he came into adulthood. Elizabeth, who has trusted the Lord all along, who has acted in obedience, does so once again as she names the baby John. Now to our surprise, everyone in attendance objects to what she names the baby. Um, We should pause for a moment to inhabit the awkwardness of that experience. Imagine that you um, just went through nine months of pregnancy. Your husband has been stricken by the Lord with silence the entire time. Eight days later, you go to pronounce the name of your son. And as soon as you do so, your friends and your relatives object. Really? Is that what you're going to name your kid? Well, of course, from our perspective, we're saying those friends and relatives, they are so insensitive and and mean. They need to just like accept what Elizabeth is saying. But in that day, everybody would be saying, Elizabeth, what are you thinking? You need to accept what all of these people are saying. You give up your preferences for the group. They're right. Um, There would have been immense pressure on her 
to accommodate the friends and relatives and name the child Zechariah instead of John. We might pass over that, but this is another testing of faith for Elizabeth along the way. Will she obey the word of the Lord? Well, yes, she does. She insists that the name of the baby should be John, and the friends and relatives insist that it shouldn't be John. So they motion for Zechariah to come over. So they're probably thinking, Elizabeth is getting out of control over here. Zechariah's been mute for nine months, and now she's running the family. She's probably um, just asserting her preference and not doing what Zechariah would want. So to their amazement, Zechariah, still unable to speak, wrote his conclusion. His name is John. And everyone's amazed by this. It goes against all cultural expectation. It means that Zechariah won't have his name carried on to the future generation. Even in this miraculous birth, he defies all of their expectations and social pressures, this time obeying the word of the Lord without hesitation. Well, immediately, following Zechariah's act of obedience to the angel's instructions, he regains his ability to speak. And the first thing that he did was praise God. The first words that came out of his mouth were praises to God. This instilled um, fear or reverence on all who were present at that naming ceremony. And as Zechariah's tongue was loose and he started to talk, um, as those friends and relatives left, they started to talk as well, spreading all of the gossip across town. And everyone was amazed about this situation. They were wondering what this child would become because it was clear that the Lord's hand was on him, but it was unclear what God would do through this child. A key point of reflection for us as we observe Zechariah and Elizabeth is that we should always respond to our faithful God with obedient faith. We should always obey him even when it violates cultural conventions, even when his commands seem impossible, even when it seems that it's going to cost us something socially, we should always obey God in faith. We can do this because God is always faithful to us. Yet, the reality is that every single one of us regularly experience falterings in our faith where we fail to obey God, where we operate out of a lack of faith, just like Zechariah did initially as he heard the proclamation of the angel earlier in chapter 1. When we experience that faltering in faith, God is often kind to us by disciplining us, by drawing us back to himself instead of allowing us to continue to stumble in our unbelief. And when that discipline comes, we ought to grow through it and draw closer to God instead of allowing that hardship or that discipline to further distance us from him. Zechariah is an excellent example of this. Have you ever wondered what Zechariah was thinking every time he instinctually opened his mouth to say something to Elizabeth or to another family member or to a friend? What, what was going through Zechariah's mind when he was so excited to tell his friends that after so many years of infertility, his wife was pregnant, but he could only resort to writing it down. How frustrating was it when he was trying to communicate to his wife, but he couldn't say a word? And how disappointing was it 
to want to speak to this newborn child. But that baby had a better command of speech than he did, where for the first eight days of this baby's life, Zechariah could say nothing. No, I love yous. No, he's so adorable, or he's so tiny. Nothing. For eight days, after decades of waiting for a child, Zechariah could say nothing to his child or to anyone else. It would be easy to empathize with Zechariah if his muteness had caused him to express bitterness towards the Lord when he could finally open his mouth. We, we would empathize with him just like we do with Naomi, who expressed her bitterness after the loss of her husband and children. But Zechariah did not allow this act of discipline to push him away from God, but it drew him closer so that his speech was transformed from a faltering in faith in one sentence to the next being praised to God nine months and eight days later when he could finally speak again. Every one of us should learn from Zechariah's example that when hardship comes into our life, it's intended to draw us closer to God, not to push us away from him. Every one of us can learn from Zechariah's experience. But I think that there's a special lesson for the older saints among us, for those Christians who have lived faithfully before God for many decades. You have a special example in Zechariah, an example of someone who lived righteously, faltered in his faith, but yet used that faltering to grow in the grace of the Lord. Every person, every day of our lives, are subject to the potential of faltering in faith, just like Zechariah did. But every person who is susceptible to this measure of failing is also wide open to the gracious discipline of God that brings development. And no person is too old to grow in the faith. That's what Zechariah shows us, especially older believers among us. The temptation is common for aging Christians to fall into a kind of complacency or to lose fervor for their spiritual development or lose zeal for growing in the Lord. After all, you've been doing it for a lifetime, right? You get tired. The hardships of life begin to weigh on you. But Zechariah demonstrates that no person is too old to grow in the Lord and to have a strengthening of faith through the discipline of God. So to the older saints among us, I want to encourage you, continue to grow in the faith and be a good example for those of us who are younger to, to not hide your faltering in the faith, but to grow through it and to develop into the image of Christ more and more day by day. Show us who are younger what it looks like to continue growing even into the final seasons of your life. And for those of us who are younger, let's learn from these individuals, and we can only do that by getting to know them. Um, so whether you are 10 or 20 or 30 or 40, don't think that the older people in our church don't want to get to know you. They probably do. Um, go up to them. Get to know them. Be involved in their lives so that you can see God's graciousness to them as they grow in their faith even though they're a lot older than we might be. Zechariah and Elizabeth teach us 
that we ought to respond to God's faithfulness with the obedience of faith. Well, the scene shifts then. If you remember last week, I tried to um, teach you about the way that songs and poems work in narrative. They invite us into the story. It's a lot like in a musical where all of the action has happened, and then the characters break into song, and what they're doing is they're reflecting on the events that just took place. They're actually interpreting it through their song, and they're inviting you to sing with them. And that's exactly what's happening here. So at the end of the first scene, everyone is wondering, what will this boy become? That's the question. And in good musical fashion, Zechariah breaks out into a song to answer the question, to interpret everything that's happened, and to invite all of these characters to join in with him, praising the God of Israel, who's showing himself faithful in setting up his prophet to prepare the way of the Lord. So as we observe this prophetic word of praise, I just want to draw your attention to three key features that Zechariah draws out. The first is that God is faithful. He does redeem his people, but he does so that that his people can serve him. So God saves people. He redeems them. He restores them. He reconciles them to God, not just so that they can have a happier life, or so that they can be better than all of the pagans. He does it so that they can enter into his presence and serve him in righteousness and holiness and blameless for all of their days. So you'll know in verse 68 that Zechariah interprets what's going on here. The God of Israel has visited his people. He's provided redemption for them. He's done it fundamentally through raising up the messianic figure, this horn of salvation in the house of David. Now, that figure is still a little bit mysterious. We'll find out in a moment that it's not John, okay? He's talking about Jesus. Um, And the language can be even complicated for some of us because we don't talk about a horn of salvation that often. Well, whenever horns show up in the Bible, it's usually talking about kings and kingdoms. You know, sometimes mysteriously in Daniel, these horns raise up or Revelation. It's talking about a king raising up to build a kingdom. And in this case, God is raising up a king to build his kingdom. He's going to bring salvation from enemies, from the hand of those who hate us. But ultimately what he's doing comes out in verses 73 through 75. God is being faithful to rescue his people so that they will serve him with fear or with reverence and awe in holiness and righteousness in God's presence all of our days. The redemption that is offered in Jesus Christ has at its aim the formation of a people who will serve God in fear, living in his presence conducting their affairs in righteousness and holiness for all of their days. When you consider the meaning of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, the meaning of redemption, what do you think of? Zechariah would have us think, God is forming us to be a people who will serve God in his presence for the rest of our days. That's the ultimate end of our redemption. It's freeing us to serve in the presence of God. 
when we talk about salvation with our unbelieving friends and relatives and neighbors, we should talk about it in this way. God has raised up his Messiah who brings about redemption to transform his people so that they can live in his presence and serve him forevermore. This was true for Israel when they were redeemed from the hand of Egypt. No fewer than 14 times in Exodus does God say this. I'm going to free you from Pharaoh so that you can serve me, so that you can worship me. And the same is true for us. Jesus came to call you to enter into redemption, not so that you can serve yourself or have a carefree life or have your best life now, but so that you can serve God now and forever. So in this season of Advent, season of Advent, may we reflect on that. This season of celebration is ultimately a celebration that we can now be in God's presence, the garden restored, God dwelling among us, us serving him forevermore, for all of our days. So God redeems his people so that they can serve him. So now Zechariah moves to directly address the question that people are asking. And surprisingly, he uses like two verses to explain what this child will become. All that he says is that John will proclaim salvation. He'll be a prophet of the Most High, preparing the way of the Lord, giving people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. So even when he talks about who John is, he doesn't really talk about John that much. But he talks about what John will do which is to proclaim salvation through the forgiveness of sins. John would take on a role of preparing people to hear about the restoration of Israel. Unfortunately, many people in Zechariah's day had conceived of God's redemption and salvation only as a military and political victory, where God would crush other people put to death anyone who would um, rise up against them. Well, Zechariah is trying to get people to reimagine what it means for God to bring salvation to Israel, for God to bring salvation to the earth. It would not come as a political victory over the enemy, squashing everybody who's in the way. Instead, it would come through the forgiveness of sins. Jesus will make clear by the end of Luke's gospel that this salvation and forgiveness would be available to all nations. So Zechariah's hearers would need to have a conversion of the imagination. They would need to reimagine what God was doing on planet earth because salvation would be offered not just for Israel, but for everyone. So the way for God's salvation to come would not be through a crusade or conquering, but through a witness to the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Israel would not be set up against her neighbors. She would be for her neighbors, inviting them in to participate, to participate in the redemption of God in the Messiah. We too may need a conversion of our imagination as we try to conceive of what it is that Jesus does for us in bringing us salvation and redemption. Fundamentally, Jesus brings us forgiveness from our sins. As we go through this world and um, have the experiences of our life, 
we're all tempted to conceive of what our deepest problem is. We, we all experience things and say, true salvation for me would look like this. Financial prosperity or social advancement or a comfortable uh, home to live in or a better car. We have all of these ideas of what salvation and uh, the good life would be. And just like Israel, we need to reconceive of that. We need a conversion of our imagination. The good life, what we really need, what our really problem is, is sin, and we really need forgiveness from it. Restoration with God. And John would prepare the way for Jesus who would bring this about by letting people know this is what you need. So when, when Zechariah says that John would give people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, we should understand that everyone had a knowledge of salvation. They all thought they knew what they needed. And John would tell them, you know not yet as you should know. You need to know a different kind of salvation that is forgiveness from sins. Every one of us needs that salvation. And the only way that we can receive it is through repentance, through turning away from our old allegiances and lesser loves to Christ alone, the Christ who John paves the way for. It's only in him that the problem of sin can be dealt with. Salvation comes only through the forgiveness of sin. So then Zechariah goes on to make it clear who this figure would be that could bring about the forgiveness of sin. He does this by drawing attention to Jesus, the dawn from on high. In his prophetic word of praise here, John or Zechariah explains that all people are living in a great darkness. In verse 79, he says that we live in darkness and under the shadow of death. That is the situation of all people. We live in darkness under the shadow of death, the shadow of sin. And it's only the dawn from on high that can break the darkness, that can send the shadow of sin running, that can guide our way into the way of peace. John says that the one who does this is the dawn from on high who will visit us. What will become clear through John's preaching is that Jesus is the dawn from on high, the sunrise that breaks the darkness the one who guides our feet into the way of peace. This picture of God's visiting presence that dispels death and darkness echoes the language of Isaiah 60, where this prophet shows us a picture of the new creation that's coming about, the restoration of all things. And Zechariah now sees that John points to Jesus, who will be the one who ushers in this new creation reality who restores the paradise of God, and who shows us the way to enter into it, the way of peace with God and one another. That way is Jesus Christ alone. So how should we ultimately respond to this message? We should respond by walking in the way of peace, by following the light of Christ, the dawn from on high, who calls us to repent of our sins and to turn to him alone. In a few moments, we'll come to the Lord's Supper, where we remember our Christ Jesus, who died for us, whose blood cleanses us from all sin, and we'll recommit to the reality that only in him 
do we find salvation from sins. Let's pray that God would allow us to walk faithfully in the path of peace that Christ gives us. Father, we thank you for Jesus, for this dawn from on high who lights up the way to peace with you. We confess that we could not have peace with you apart from Jesus making a way for us. So would you allow us to continually walk in that way and to declare that message just as John the baptizer did. May we prepare the way of the Lord so that at his return, at the second coming of Christ, there would be a people ready, waiting for his return. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.